The following was recorded at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Tuesday, June 19th. I'm Marco Werman. A call for mass demonstrations in Egypt as both candidates in the presidential runoff there claim victory. Also turmoil in Pakistan, too. The country's Supreme Court disqualifies the prime minister from holding public office. And a popular singer from northwest Pakistan is gunned down. I'm sure the people who have killed her might have finished her life, but they will never be able to omit the love of people for her. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, global reach, local impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Egypt may be entering a period of heavy political turbulence. The country's largest Islamist group is calling for mass demonstrations. The Muslim Brotherhood is unhappy with moves by Egypt's military to grab more power. And the two candidates who just faced each other in a presidential runoff vote are both claiming victory. Today, the campaign of Hosni Mubarak's last prime minister, Ahmed Shafiq, said he won the close vote. The Muslim Brotherhood's political party disputes that, as the world's Matthew Bell reports from Cairo. At the headquarters for the Muslim Brotherhood's Freedom and Justice Party in downtown Cairo today, visitors were given a phone book-sized tome of election results from right across Egypt. Yasser Ali is campaign spokesman. I asked him, with both candidates now claiming victory, are we looking at the Egyptian version of Bush versus Gore in 2000? Is that a fair comparison? No, Is that what's going on? No, no comparison, actually. Uh, Ali says the proof is in the numbers. They show that Mohamed Morsi won the election. This is not based on speculation, he says. It's reality. Indeed, the party's tally during the first round of voting turned out to be accurate. But another side of reality is that Egypt's ruling generals appear very unwilling to hand over real authority to the new president. High court judges allied with the military ruled last week to disband parliament. Then, just as the voting process came to an end on Sunday, the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces gave itself sweeping powers through an 11th-hour constitutional amendment. Ali says it was a travesty of justice and democracy. One party is give himself the power to declare such a constitutional decision is unbelievable. All Egyptians are, they refuse this including us. Also on hand at the Brotherhood's party headquarters was Mahmoud Khodri, head of the Legislative Committee in Parliament. The Military Council has closed any legal path for lawmakers to reverse these undemocratic decisions, he said. It's time to go back to Tahrir Square. And will you be there yourself? Of course, I will be uh, to the streets, and I'm not stranger uh, in the streets because, you know, during the revolution, I spent 18 days sleeping on a couch in, in uh, Tahrir Square, yeah, and I'm ready to do that for the rest of my life. 
Meanwhile, in another part of Cairo, at Ahmed Shafiq's campaign headquarters, a group of supporters held their own demonstration. Spokesman Ahmed Sarhan called Ahmed Shafiq the real winner of the presidential race, with almost 52 percent of the vote. He said the Shafiq campaign will pursue legal action against the Morsi campaign. The report produced by the Brotherhood's party, Sarhan said, is false. But when asked by reporters for evidence of a Shafiq victory, the spokesman had none to offer. He simply said the other campaign's numbers are wrong. As the news conference came to an end, the numbers in Tahrir Square were growing. Many Egyptians from all political stripes are frustrated with military rule, and today's call for demonstrations by the Muslim Brotherhood is an attempt to rally those forces against the military. But the Muslim Brotherhood itself is divisive. 19-year-old university student Mohammed Gohari, not a Brotherhood supporter, says this is the moment for the Islamist group to build a united front. The people do not have that much faith in the Muslim Brotherhood. We all know that. They have mistrust with them. However, all the revolutionary, or most of the revolutionary powers, they supported Morsi in the re-election phase, in the second phase, because simply... Shafi means that there is no revolution. There isn't going to be any revolution anymore. Gohari says the Brotherhood has an opportunity to reach out to all the pro-revolutionary forces now, and not just in the streets. He says Morsi, if and when he becomes president, could send a message by bringing people other than just Islamists into his new government. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Cairo. Get the latest from the streets of Cairo on Twitter. Follow Matthew Bell's tweets at Matthew J. Bell. And for updates from the world, we're at PRI The World. Pakistan, with a leader, is a hard country to govern. Without a leader, it's difficult to say what could happen there. Today, Pakistan's Prime Minister Yusuf Raza Gilani was disqualified from holding office by the country's Supreme Court. Two months ago, it convicted Gilani of contempt of court for refusing to reopen corruption cases against Pakistan's president. Now the court has declared that also means a prime minister is not legally entitled to remain in office. Declan Walsh of the New York Times is in Islamabad. Uh, This is huge news for Pakistan, Declan. A prime minister told he can't be prime minister. What's the reaction to today's ruling? Well, we've just had a reaction from the ruling party. They've indicated that they will accept the ruling. They indicate that Mr. Kalani is no longer the prime minister of the country and that his cabinet effectively stands dismissed. They say they're going to meet with the minority partners of the coalition later on this evening. And at that point, after consulting with the president, Asfali Zardari, they will announce what their next move in this sort of long-running confrontation will be. So give us a clear picture of what Prime Minister Ghilani is convicted of doing. Prime Minister Ghilani was convicted of contempt of court on April 26th. Uh, President Zardari had faced a number of corruption prosecutions in Switzerland in the 1990s. Um, In recent years, the court had taken those cases up again effectively and had been urging Mr. Ghilani to write to the authorities in Switzerland, effectively getting them to restart those corruption prosecutions. Now, Mr. Ghilani had argued back that he was not in a position to do that because the president, as he put it, 
enjoys immunity from prosecution and therefore it would have been against the constitution. Um, and, then, and then there was this, this little sort of interregnum period for the last uh, six weeks or so. Uh, and then finally today we had this ruling from the court saying that it had had enough uh, it was effectively pulling the trigger and firing Mr. Galani, dismissing him from office and instructing President Sardari that it is now time for him to choose and, or to start the process of appointing or electing a new prime minister. Does the Supreme Court have the power to do this? And does Mr. Galani have to abide by the ruling? Well, that is um, a very hotly debated question here in Pakistan. Certainly, the government has consistently argued that the court is effectively prosecuting a personal grudge between the Chief Justice Iftikhar Muhammad Chowdhury um, and Mr. Zardari. This is a, a sort of a personal hostility that goes back three or four years to a point when Mr. Zardari had uh, opposed the reinstatement of uh, Justice Chowdhury as, as Chief Justice. So the government is very strongly arguing that this is a politically motivated prosecution. Um, and uh, But on the other hand, should the government choose to somehow refuse this order, that would very seriously escalate this conflict and create a very an, an even more serious crisis, I would say, in terms of a clash between the government and the court. With civilian government in limbo, does this uh, present a greater risk of, of the military getting involved in politics in Pakistan? Well, that's certainly a fear on some people's minds. Um, it's been a very unstable period for uh, the judiciary and for government here in Pakistan, even by Pakistan's own standards over the last couple of weeks. And at the same time, outside the court, you know, there are very serious problems rumbling along in the economy and the governance of the country. There have been extremely violent riots uh, in several major cities of Punjab province over the past three days by people who are angry at the extreme uh, power shortages in the country. In some areas, people are suffering power outages of up to 20 hours a day. Um, and this is in, ex in extreme summer temperatures. So that anger is spilling out onto the streets. We've seen uh, violent clashes between protesters and the police. Buildings have been burned down. Offices have been attacked. The homes of some ruling party politicians have, been, have also been assaulted. So the temperature outside the court is also quite high, and, and that's contributing to the, the tension around the situation. The New York Times' Declan Walsh in the Pakistani capital, Islamabad. Thank you, Declan. My pleasure. Now to another story of instability in Pakistan, this one with a violent end. It's about Kharzala Javed, a well-known Pakistani singer. She fled the Taliban to pursue her career. Last night, she was gunned down as she was leaving a beauty parlor in the northwest Pakistan city of Peshawar. Her father was with her, and he was also killed. Khazala Javed was just 24 years old. Zarhuna Kargar is with the BBC's Afghan service in London, Zarhuna, we know that the Taliban have had a very uneasy relationship with music and with artists. Has it been determined why Kharzala Javed was murdered? The, uh, the police says that it might be uh, some kind of personal family matter, that uh, the killer might be her ex-husband, uh, because she left him. and Apparently, she was going to marry someone else, and he was angry, and uh, he was giving her threats. But if you look at the reality of uh, singers, female singers in the region, uh, not only in Pakistan, in Afghanistan, for a woman to become a singer and to perform on TV and stages and concerts, it's a taboo. Even listening to music was banned, and Ghazala was very popular. Uh, many of her listeners and fans were men, actually. Mm. To, were men, yeah, you're saying? 
Yes, I, I see comments on Facebook since last night. And some says that it is the struggle of Pashtun women to prove themselves that look what they can do. They can become good singers, they can become popular and uh, people with um, talent, they can come out, but they uh, shut them up by killing them. And it's not only Ghazala Jawed. Last year, Eman Udas, another Pashto singer, was killed. Or Pashto news readers being assassinated just because they come to public. You, you pointed out that she came from Pakistan's notorious Swat Valley, where Taliban militants uh, mm-hmm. were established. Tell us more about Ghazala and her music, because she must have been pretty dedicated to her craft at a young age if she escaped she the Taliban was. to make music. She started singing in a very young age, and she became very, very popular because she did a lot of debut singing with Rahim Shah, one of very, very famous male singers for Pashtuns and Pashto language. And she did a lot of film songs with him together, and it became very popular. And lately, uh, she did a lot of performance on Pakistani national TV, and she sang mostly about love, about her country, about her culture, about her traditions. I live in uh, London, and Mm. it's the last 10 years, and I've been listening to her songs. How did you react when you heard about her killing? I'm very upset, um, because I know I've lived in Peshawar. It's a very strict society. It's a very strict community. For a woman to come out on TV, it's a big step. I knew about her bravery. I knew about her courage. Uh, She is a clear example of what Pashtun women can go through if they dare to show their talent. How do you think Ghazala's music is now going to translate? Will she become a martyr and her songs take on a new meaning? I'm sure the people who have killed her might have finished her life, but they will never be able to omit the love of people for her. I'm sure they're not able to delete all her songs and all her videos from YouTube, from Internet, from their Facebook pages all her pictures all around Facebook and YouTube and Twitter today. And people will listen to it more and more and more, I think. Yahuna Kagar with the BBC's Afghan service speaking with us about the killing of Pakistani singer Khazala Javed. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. This is PRI Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, Global Reach, Local Impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Our GeoQuiz arrives today along the well-traveled Pan-American Highway. American Highway is a nearly 30,000-mile stretch of road. It extends from Prudhoe Bay, Alaska to Ushuaia at the southern tip of Argentina. But just about midway on that route through the Americas, there is a 50-mile-long obstacle. 
for our quiz, we want you to name this impassable tangle of jungle and swamp that lies between Panama and Colombia. In earlier centuries, pirates and gold miners traverse this area. These days, motorized travelers have to bypass this stretch somehow. We're about to hear what that means exactly, but first you have just a few seconds to name the gap that interrupts the Pan-American Highway. The answer is the Darien Gap, and bypassing it on your trip along the Pan-American Highway is no easy feat. It usually involves shipping your vehicle from Colón, Panama to Cartagena, Colombia. Only a few hundred travelers do that each year. Reporter Zachary Slobig takes us along for the ride. A dusty parking lot outside an unmarked customs office in Panama City is the first stop for anyone determined to follow the Pan-American Highway from Central to South America. The road ends three hours east of here, at the infamous Darien Gap, where even some of the most rugged off-road adventures have tanked. It seems like we've read enough to, to be thoroughly confused. My wife and I found travelers Lindsay Madsen and Brian Ronstad by posting an invitation online to split a shipping container. We know we're here to get uh, the cars inspected for what? We don't know yet. Ronstad and Madsen drove from Portland, Oregon, with plenty of guidebooks in a van they named Claudette equipped with a bed and a basic camp stove. Claudette is uh, dirty and tired, but I think she'll get us to Columbia. The customs inspector soon shuffled over from the far side of the lot. No identification, no uniform. Any official with the Bob Marley shirt is uh, somebody I'm happy to do business with. <laughs> the official requested the vehicle titles and a handful of other documents. La copia es el original. copia de este? I don't think we have a copy of that. We've driven across six international borders on this trip so far. At each stop, there's been some additional document that needs copying. Fortunately, there's always a copy machine nearby. My wife found one across the street inside a deli cooler next to a stack of plantains. The next day, we're off to the port city of Colón, an hour drive north. One guidebook advises to avoid Cologne unless you relish the possibility of a mugging at knife point. At 10 a.m., we're waiting on a street corner just outside the gates of the city's 40-square block duty-free zone to meet Boris Hamadio, our shipping agent. Boris! Hi, Boris. Hi, Boris. Hi, Boris. Hamadio arrived and led us to the Cologne Customs Office for more paperwork. Here need two or three copies only. The port needed more. But for the custom, need two or three, okay. including the origin. Hamadio has become known on web message boards as the go-to shipping agent in Colón. It's not a niche he sought out, but travelers continue to rely on him. This is not my business, my principal business, my business other business. But in the beginning, some people tell me, please help me. Yeah, I'm ready. We caravan to our next stop, the port inspection area. Here we found two Volkswagen vans waiting for shipment, also clients of Hamadio. The port inspector arrived, and we unloaded our vehicles for inspection by Judy, the drug-sniffing retriever. Judy! With the inspections complete, each traveler counted out a small pile of cash for Hamadio. And watch port workers drive their vehicles towards the docks. Travelers have two options at this point take the quick flight to Cartagena or sail there over several days by way of the San Blas Islands. 
We chose the latter, as did Ronstadt and Madsen. We booked passage on separate ships and planned to meet up in Cartagena. My wife and I made our way to the blue Caribbean waters of Puerto Lindo, where our boat, the Tres Amigos, really, that's the name, was anchored. Okay, look up and make sure it's not caught on anything up there. In Puerto Lindo, we found our captain, Brian Burke, and bad sailing conditions. We've got northeast winds today, 15 to 20 knots, with some higher gusts. Uh, seas are three and a half meters coming down from a four-meter swell. We waited for four nights for the system to pass. On the morning of our fifth day, we raised the sails and made a go of it. Today will be an adventure, that's for sure. Pretty rough out there. I have no problem sailing in these conditions. It's a very strong boat. A mile further out to sea, though, our captain's bravado had flagged. I think the best thing is just to hang out another day, wait for the weather, and if people decide they don't want to go, then that's cool. There'll be some refunds. We decided to jump ship and found our way to nearby Portobello for the night to arrange for air travel. The next evening, we were on a 46-minute flight to South America. We found Ronstadt and Madsen in their Cartagena Hotel courtyard the next day. They had sailed successfully, if not entirely comfortably. The last 36 hours of open ocean to port had been rough. We have definitely realized that we are land lovers. Yeah, 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 it was, it was a challenge. It was a challenge. But we did it. Or as we like to say... An opportunity. An opportunity. (laughs) (laughs) After a trip to the shipping company office where we paid our release fees and a long morning in a sprawling customs office... ...where we completed yet more paperwork and were assigned an inspector who never arrived, we were sent to the Port Authority to meet with our final gatekeeper in the process, Pablo Uribe who outfitted us with the proper safety equipment to enter the port. I'm going to give you a, what do you call this? A uh, helmet. A helmet. Yeah. A helmet and a, a reflect. Best, see? Yeah, a reflect best. First, of course, yet another round of documents. Name, name, name. Passport number and passport number. A couple of bureaucratic steps and hours later, we were escorted through the bustling backyard of the port past its belching big rigs and halting forklifts, past the dock where the cruise ships unload into a grove of trees filled with chattering parrots, and finally to a lot even dustier than the one where we began our journey in Panama City. Hey, hey. there they are. (laughs) Tires still have a little air in them. Awesome. Ooh, that's a good sound. Back behind the wheel, our journeys continued down the winding Pan-American highway towards the equator. For the world, I'm Zachary Slobig in Cartagena, Colombia. We've posted Zachary's really excellent travel photos at theworld.org. Kudos to Zachary and to our geotexting game winners today, Eric in San Diego, Tristan in Arlington, Virginia, and Uche in Denver, all correctly named the 50-mile jungle that interrupts the Pan-American highway, the Darien Gap. If you want to take on the geotexting challenge, text GEOQUIZ, one word, GEOQUIZ to 69866. I'm Marco Werman. Christians are a minority in Syria, under pressure from both sides of the conflict there. Ahead, one Syrian Christian tells us his people have long felt neglected in the region. 
if you ask me personally, I think that the value of the oil in the Middle East is much higher than the Christian minorities. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, global reach, local impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. You may recall a couple of weeks ago we had a global hit on Syrian wedding singer-turned-rock superstar Omar Suleiman. He was playing at a club near our studios here in Boston. What he's saying, he will never sing any other singer's songs. Well, my translator at the show was Salah Asfura. He is Syrian Christian, an architect, and has lived in Worcester, Massachusetts, since 1992. He says while Syria is often thought of solely as a Muslim country, there are Christians there too. In fact, many say Christianity began in Syria when St. Paul landed in Damascus nearly 2,000 years ago. You know, he was an outlaw, he was a criminal, he was in Damascus, and he converted there in a small place they call it Hanania Church which still exists right now. You can visit it. Now, Syria is officially a secular country with many religious sects, mostly Sunni Muslims, but also Shias and smaller groups like Sufis and Alawites, the ethnicity President Assad belongs to. There's even a very small Jewish community. Christians make up about 10 percent of the country, and they're especially scared right now. Since the uprising and the crackdown began, Asfura told me that his family's daily routine here in the U.S., follows the same pattern. We wake up every morning, you know, I start making the phone calls. It takes me like every day two, three hours just to go through the news, different web page, make the phone calls. And by the time when you're done by, by 10 in the morning, it's really emotionally, it kills you. I will tell you that uh, for the last year, my productivity went down to less than 50%. I just cannot concentrate and, and I do design work, so, you know, it takes a lot of concentration, but uh, it takes a lot, of, you know, from away from your energy. In modern times, Christians have supported the Assad family. Bashar al-Assad and his father Hafez insisted on a secular Syrian state to prevent sectarian violence between Sunni and Shia Muslims and to keep the Islamist forces at bay. That made Christians pretty happy, and it ensured their support for the Assad family. But day after bloody day for the past year, that equation feels increasingly irrelevant for Syrian Christians. Most of Asfura's extended family lives in homes. They've reported to him that parts of homes have been badly damaged, but they're lucky to live in a relatively untouched part of the city. Still, there's a lot at stake for Syrian Christians. When anti-Assad militants entered homes last year, they occupied the oldest central part of the city, a primarily Christian neighborhood. Asfura says when that happened, many Christians there just packed their bags and left. So I asked him, do the militants in Syria have issues with, with the Christian community? Only if you stay in their way. For example, there's a, a town between Homs and Lebanon, Qusair. Qusair is, has been a mixed town, like 50% to Christians and Muslims. So in this town, you know, the militants took over also because it's a, it's a very strategic point for them between Lebanon and Syria to smuggle fighters and weapons and everything else. 
So some Christian families actually, they did not show resistance, but they didn't want to work with the fighters. And at least 10 people were killed. The future seems even more grim for Syrian Christians when they recall the example of Iraq just next door after the U.S. invasion. As Fura says, in Syria, like Iraq, the fight could get sectarian at any moment, and Christians would be hard-pressed to defend themselves. In Iraq, 2003, you know, before the, the war of Iraq, there, used, there was no exact numbers, but there used to be living in Iraq more than 2 million Christians. Right now, there's less than half a million. And this was under the watch of the American army. When these, you know, things happen, Christians have no protection. All you have to do is just send a car bomb to their neighborhood, and they will all leave. They have no weapon, they have no fighters, and they have no international support. They're really insignificant small minority in the Middle East. You know, if you ask me personally... I think that the value of the oil in the Middle East is much higher than the Christian minorities. Salah Asfura, a Syrian Christian living in the United States, which is, for all intents and purposes, a Christian country. But up till now, he says Syrian Christians in the U.S. haven't played that card. They're still fairly confident that atrocities back home won't destroy the Christian population. We still have some faith that's not going to happen to the Christians in Syria. We still have some faith that something's going to happen. Either, you know, it's going to be finished in a military way or they're going to sit at one table and talk and solve the situation. Uh, on the other hand, there's actually, in, in Boston alone, there's four different Syrian churches. You know, in Worcester alone, we have three of them. And uh, all they can do right now is just, you know, collect uh, money and uh, so they can send it over to help families. And uh, that's all they can do right now. Salah Asfura, a Syrian Christian and a resident of Worcester, Mass., reflecting on life of Christians back home. Europe's financial crisis didn't end with the elections in Greece. Today's focus was on Spain. It's struggling to finance its debt, forced to sell bonds at record high interest rates. If that continues, the government might have to seek a Greek-style bailout. Spain has already received $125 billion in loan guarantees to prop up its banks. The country's bigger financial institutions are actually okay. They didn't invest heavily in so-called toxic assets. The problem in Spain lies with a host of smaller local savings banks, or cajas. They took too many risks. And as the world's Jerry Haddon reports, they lacked proper oversight. So this classical dance teacher from southern Spain... Her name's Isabel Cambronero. She's on her honeymoon in 2007, and as she tells it, she gets a phone call. It was the head of a local savings bank called the Caja Mediterráneo. The banker tells Cambronero she's been chosen to sit on the bank's control board. Surprised, Cambronero tells the guy she doesn't know much about finance. He says it doesn't matter. You just need common sense. Turns out Cambronero was chosen for the control board job through a lottery, a lottery for customers. These cajas, essentially old-fashioned Main Street savings banks, but not for profit, would reserve some seats on their oversight commissions for regular folks, depositors, and choose them by pulling their name out of a hat, so to speak. Cambronero accepted the job, and the roughly $30,000 it paid to go to a few meetings, rubber-stamp the bank's investment plans, 
It seemed to her a great arrangement. In all my time on the board, she says, I never saw anything questionable. Everything had the okay of the bankers. I never knew we were having problems. Not until 2011, when the Bank of Spain was literally intervening to save the Caja, Cambronero's story is driving lawmakers nuts. You see, Cambronero has been telling it to a parliamentary committee in Valencia, Spain, where the bank was located. This incredulous lawmaker asks, how is it possible that everyone just believed what the bankers told them without questioning anything? It isn't logical. For example, did you know that your bank had money in offshore safe havens? Here's Cambronero's response. It's a bit crazy, she said, not to trust the very people working for the bank. It was their bank and mine. I hold it very dear. It was like a second home. It doesn't occur to you that they're going to do their work badly. It's like when you go to the doctor, she said. You have no reason to doubt his word. Critics of Spain's caja say besides clients, the control boards were stacked with political appointees who earned lots of money and who had an interest in turning a blind eye. So by the late 2000s, you had 45 cajas controlling nearly half of Spain's financial system with essentially no reliable oversight. While no one was looking, what did they do wrong? First, here's what they used to do right. Lend locally to neighborhood businesses, to families. This worked for more than a century. Then came the construction fever of the 1990s when Caja Mediterraneo collapsed last year. It was investing 98 out of every $100 in ladrillos or bricks and mortar. As you probably know, the construction bubble here has burst in technicolor. But it gets worse, because lately the cajas, instead of making loans to struggling Spaniards, have been investing in government bonds. So if the banks go under, they could drag the government down with them, and vice versa. Economists call this a feedback loop, like when you put an electric guitar too close to an amplifier, and the squealing gets louder and louder. To make it stop, to make saving the banks and the government easier, you have to separate them again. But economists and European officials say for that to happen, European banking rules need a radical overhaul, an overhaul that could take years. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon in Barcelona. So are teetering banks and mounting debt the cause of Europe's woes right now? Or is the financial crisis exposing a more deep-rooted problem for Europe, a crisis of identity? Here's The World's Patrick Cox. If you ask Fintan O'Toole what's bringing Europe down right now, he'll tell you it's the sudden disappearance of democracy. All that rhetoric about European values, about solidarity, about notions of, of democratic values, all that stuff proves to be very fragile. You know, what's really happened in our case is that nobody really gives a damn about democracy. O'Toole is an Irish commentator who in the past has supported Ireland's integration into Europe. No longer. Now he sees Europe, and by that he means Germany, brushing aside the elected leaders of smaller, debt-ridden states to impose take-it-or-leave-it austerity measures. The Irish have really been the forerunners of this. We turned a banking crisis into a sovereign debt crisis and then turned a sovereign debt crisis into a democratic crisis. And that's exactly what's happening everywhere through Europe. So the banking crisis is morphing and now it's reaching the point of being a crisis of democracy itself. As O'Toole sees it, democracy is the cornerstone of European unity. Without it, the continent would splinter. And Europe is greatly experienced at doing just that. There's nothing natural about an idea 
of Europe. It doesn't happen of its own. It's always the product crafted by, by leaders and thinkers and politicians. This is Miri Rubin, professor of European history at Queen Mary University of London. Rubin says five or six hundred years ago, Europe, of course, didn't have democracy, but there was something else that was shared. Well, when we think about the Middle Ages, there was definitely some glue there to support a vision of, a, of an integrated Europe, and that's Christianity. And that also means that there's a cost, of course, those who don't fit in. Jews, Muslims and others. It all broke down in the 16th century. And then for the next couple of hundred years, war was pretty much a constant in Europe. But Rubin says the Europe of the Middle Ages offers clues for survival today. What I think we can learn from that is that there has to be a vision a narrative, a reason to join and to want to be part. And of course, what, we're, what we have to do nowadays is also bring on a vast millions of, of, of the populace. And so we're back to democracy. People must vote for that vision these days. In fact, some argue that democracy has become the unifying belief that European leaders have used to bind the continent together. But there's also the worry that democracy may be Europe's Achilles heel, Historian Lawrence Rees says democracy can become dangerous when voters are spooked by a failing economy. It's very often forgotten that in the 1928 election in Germany, the Nazis got just 2.6% of the vote, and internal reports amongst the, the elite were dismissing them as a total waste of space. They were going nowhere. And then suddenly, by 1932, the Nazis are the biggest party in Germany, and that's pretty much down to an economic crisis and collapse in banks. The catastrophe and bloodshed that then engulfed Europe was what eventually led to the European Union and the Euro. In 1951, six nations, including Germany, signed the European Coal and Steel Community, the earliest forerunner of the EU. The reason it was coal and steel was those are the two resources you need to make weapons with. And so actually there was a deliberate plan thinking, well, Germany's been responsible through pursuing its own foreign policies, uniquely its own foreign policies. Germany's been responsible for the two world wars. We're not going to let it happen again. We're tying Germany in initially by the use of these two resources, which are the resources for, for war. So that was a huge motivational factor in the foundation of all this. And so the beginnings of Europe's integration were based not on a positive vision, but a negative one, never again. Lawrence Rees isn't sure if either that or a vision of democracy is enough to hold today's much larger group of nations together, especially if you're German. If you have to give half your wealth up in order to support a load of feckless Greeks as you see it, at what point do you have enough of that? In other words, how much is unity worth? Reese expects more and more Germans to push their leaders to go it alone. You're looking for more isolationism. You're looking to actually detach yourself from the broader Europe. And that, who knows where that could go? Nobody knows. And maybe that's what's uniting Europeans right now. For The World, I'm Patrick Cox. There are lots of things that Siri can do. She, the disembodied office assistant on the latest version of iPhones, can find things. Find me a store that sells organic mushrooms for my risotto. This organic market looks pretty close to you. She can tell jokes. And today, I was asked to warm up the crowd, which should be easy since the high will be 75 degrees. Thanks for that. And she can do all this in a host of different languages, including in China, Mandarin, and Cantonese. But what Siri can't do in China is broach taboo subjects. Ask Siri, do you know about Tiananmen Square, for example? And the usual helpful helper will say, I couldn't find any appointments related to, do you know about Tiananmen? Siri can't provide directions to Tiananmen either. 
Apple isn't talking, but since Siri gets her information from Internet databases and China closely supervises the Internet, it's safe to assume one of Siri's many talents in China is figuring out different ways of saying, I don't know. You're listening to The World on PRI Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Relations between Turkey and Israel have been icy the past two years, ever since Israeli commandos killed several activists aboard a Turkish ship challenging the Gaza blockade. The resulting tensions have left some Turks suspicious of Israel. So when Turkish villagers recently found a bird with an Israeli tag on its leg, many suspected espionage. Matthew Brunwasser has more from Istanbul. The article in the Turkish national daily Haberturk was serious. A European bee-eater, Merops apiaster, was found dead in a field. Its leg had a metal ring stamped with the words, Israel, Tel Aviv. One of its nostrils was suspiciously large. Authorities reckoned it was evidence that electronic surveillance equipment had been stuffed inside. For some Turks, it all added up to Israeli espionage. But could birds actually be spies? No. Ornithologist Chan Shekerjiolu from the University of Utah runs a bird banding station in northwestern Turkey. The very word intelligence and intelligence gathering, you obviously could not apply to birds because creatures without intelligence cannot gather intelligence. Shekerjiolu says bird banding is a valuable research tool to study birds' migration routes. One wonders, if the bird was a spook, why would it be clearly banded with the name of the country it was supposedly spying for? Last year, another banded bird caught the attention of authorities in Saudi Arabia. They detained a vulture, which was also banded Tel Aviv, Israel. And thankfully, the crown prince was a smart guy who knew about science and wildlife research. So he said, oh, this bird is just, you know, they're just studying this bird's uh, movements. So let it go. Suspected animal conspirators are found beyond the avian variety. In 2010, Egyptian officials said they were investigating a shark attack in the Red Sea, which killed a tourist. In this TV interview, Egyptian diving instructor Mustafa Ismail suggested Israel's intelligence agency, the Mossad, had changed shark behavior to disrupt Egyptian tourism. And, he suggested, they sent deadly jellyfish, too. But perhaps most mysterious was a report in 2007 in the official Iranian Islamic Republic News Agency, or IRNA. Fourteen squirrels were arrested by Iranian intelligence. The IRNA report said the animals were, quote, carrying spy gear of foreign agencies, and that they were stopped before they could act, thanks to the alertness of our intelligence services. Peter Smallwood is a squirrel biologist from the University of Richmond. If the U.S. were running a squirrel spying program, Smallwood would probably be running it. He denies the existence of any such program, of course. And anyway, he says squirrels wouldn't make very good spies. I think it's pretty easy to lure squirrels to a place to get something they want, but that means you'd have to go there and put the stuff there. So, But that... You know, for intelligence work, you want the squirrel to go out somewhere, not come to where you are. You know, if, if you're going to put a person there to draw the squirrel in, you may as well have the person do the spying. Though he says squirrels might be cut out for some spy agency work. 
if you wanted a squirrel to just drive somebody crazy, that that might be more more useful. But you'd need to be there with the squirrel. Maybe for interrogations. Yes. <laughs> the tensions between Israel and most of its neighbors show little sign of easing in the near future. Similarly, the rich flora and fauna of Middle East conspiracy theories probably won't diminish anytime soon either. For the world, I'm Matthew Brunwasser in Istanbul. Finally today, why would a 29-year-old actress take on the musical persona of a 91-year-old gypsy named Kali Mutsa? The actress is Celine Raymond from Chile. Marissa Neff has her story. The mythology that Celine Raymond has created around Kalimutsa is so detailed that it's sometimes challenging to distinguish between what's real and what's imagined. She was born in a valley that's called Pachacuti, and that's in the, it's a, an oasis of jungle in the middle of the Chilean desert. And um, she's born in, uh, in a caravan of gypsy artists. Well, she started very young. She escaped in a circus, and she wanted to be a dancer, and then she started singing in an orchestra. A lot of years later, she modernized her music so she can come back to the scene because she's very, like, young-looking. Like most Chileans, Raymond's heritage is a mix of many different cultures. My, my grandfather is Palestinian, and uh, I'm French, and I'm Equatorian uh, and Venezuelan, and Chilean, of course. I have an ancestor that is gypsy, very far away, and it's very mysterious. That's why I like to draw a line, like an imaginary line, to uh, continue the story. In part, it's this mix that spawned Kalimutsa, a project that marries Raymond's curiosity about her own gypsy roots with a love of her native Chile and its indigenous culture. All my life I love gypsy music and I love Arab music and um, I'm a big fan of surrealism. And then I said, I would like to do something that comes from an homage to our ethnic people from, from South America. The single off her latest EP is called Tunupa. According to Aymar and tradition, Tunupa is the god of nature and creation. This uh, song about uh, praising um, a higher entity. I came from a Catholic upbringing. And I hate it all the time in the mess, like ugly songs. And I wondered, how could it be like to make my own religious song about something I believe? And that's how I came up with Tunupa. It's a fun song, like you can sing it, but you're like calling God, you know? A good God, like of nature and uh, flowers and fun. In her other career, Raymond has starred in soap operas throughout South America. 
She says she's always had an active imagination, so allowing herself to be possessed by Kalimutsa comes naturally. I love her. She's me, but uh, with a magical story, you know. I'm an actress, actually, but it was the most near-to-me way to do music. I can be as uh, magical as, and as surrealistic as I can because I'm in a character. For the world, I'm Marissa Knapp. You can watch a trippy Kalimutsa music video, including dancers with eagle beaks, at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. Thanks for tuning in. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported by the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, by contributors to the PRI Program Fund, and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI Public Radio International.